Hey, Two Cities Church, Pastor Kyle here. We are in week 12 of online only, and I miss you all, okay? I miss gathering. I miss it as a pastor. I miss it as a Christian. Just like you, I'm with my family on either Saturday night or Sunday morning or maybe Sunday afternoon and trying to watch the services, and, and it's awesome, and I'm grateful for technology, but it's not the same. And, and we're hearing this from, from all different types of people, how grateful they are, but how it's not the same. One, one dad told me, for example, he said that after two weeks ago after the service, their family said, hey, let's pray for the church, let's pray for Two Cities, and they each prayed, and then their daughter, who's still very young, said, I pray for Kyle because he talks too much, okay? So there you go. We're, we're, everybody's got their own kind of ideas about how online is going, and, and I want to let you know this, that we are moving forward and reopening the church. We're going to do it in phases. We shot a video uh, a week ago or so, and you saw that, and we're going to continue to try to over-communicate. Now, let me just give you a couple principles that we're working with. Principle one is simply this. Um, that the church needs to gather. We, we believe that. That's a biblical theological conviction. We will gather together again, I promise. We're trying to do it in the most courageous, cautious, and compassionate way. Here's the second conviction. The second conviction is that we should be good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians. We do not believe, I do not believe that the church is being specifically targeted in this season and told not to gather. Where all large events are told not to gather in this season. If I felt like we were being specifically targeted, we would gather this week. Uh, if I felt, felt like we were being singled out as a church or as the church. I do not feel that way. Third is that we want to uh, love, bless, and serve our city. We don't just have a church vision. We have a city vision. And we would not want to do anything to hurt the economy of our city or to hurt the vulnerable in our city. And then finally, on a real practical note, just on a real practical note, um, our ministries, because of their size and scope, they were not designed for social distancing. Uh, passionate corporate worship that's dynamic, where we're all singing and worshiping together. A, a very hospitable, welcoming culture. A dynamic kids ministry. Those are difficult to do, maybe impossible to do, with strict social distancing guidelines. And so we're going to continue to take our next step, and we're doing that. I'll give you an example. This last weekend, we had our, or this Thursday and Friday, um, we had our first online-only weekender. Still tons of people signed up. We had about 60 people there. We use Zoom, we use technology, and we're helping people take their next step. And then let me just tell you this, and you probably experienced this. Many of you, your community group has come back together in person. You're meeting outside. We're hearing stories about that. We're hearing about groups coming together uh, to watch the service outside on Sunday. And so uh, let me just pray for us, for the unity of the church, as together we take our next step and uh, we're going to continue to over-communicate, and we're going to pray for those who took their next step at this weekend. Pray with me. Um, Lord Jesus, I pray for the unity of our church as we are trying to take all that Scripture says and a unique moment in history and to be obedient to your word and to move forward with compassion and courage and conviction, Lord. We want to do things out of conviction of what we believe where you're leading us. Um, Lord, I pray for every person who took their next step of the weekender to get more connected and committed. We all long for the day we can come back together in person and worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been following along with us, we're in the book of Galatians, and it's a small book with some really big ideas. And last week, just to sum up, or two weeks ago, I should say, we talked about this idea of freedom. Now, freedom is a major theme in scripture and in the book of Galatians, and Paul, oftentimes, he talks about the same thing many different ways because we keep forgetting, right? It's like what Martin Luther said one time, that famous monk. Uh, he, he said he would preach the gospel each week, and, and every once in a while, people say, why are you preaching the gospel to us each week? And he said, because every week, you come in here looking like people who don't believe the gospel. And he said, I'm going to preach this gospel to you because that's what, that's what you look like as you come in here. And so now two weeks ago when we were talking, uh, Paul talked about two dangers, two ways that we can either lose or abuse our freedom. We lose our freedom in moralism 
and we abuse our freedom in hedonism. Hedonism is like the pursuit of pleasure and all that. And so, uh, and what he's saying is we want to avoid those two ditches. And so much of life, so much of the Christian life, right, is avoiding the ditches that we can fall into. Um, we want to avoid the ditch of moralism, which if, if you fall into that ditch, you end up being critical, you end up being judgmental, um, you end up be feeling either superior to other people or you, you despair because you can't keep all the new rules and laws that you have. Uh, but also, we want to we avoid the ditch of hedonism, right? Hedonism is, I just, I, I'm free, or I'm free in Christ, or whatever, and so I'm going to go and live and do whatever I want. And, and we know that that's not ultimately what we want in life, right? Because all you have to do is look at, like, you know, look at the person who was a glutton for, you know, 30 years. Nobody looks at that person and goes, that's what I want. I want to be a glutton. I want to die at 50 years old of a heart attack. No one wants that. Right? Nobody wants the life of being addicted to some kind of substance. Take example, no one wants the life of an alcoholic, right? Who has wrecked and destroyed all of the relationships in his life and, or her life and has become a liar. Because by the way, most alcoholics become liars. <laughs> because they first lie to themselves and they lie to others about how much they're drinking. Nobody wants that life. Nobody wants the lust-filled life that can't have any meaningful relationships and is always looking for the next hookup. Nobody wants that life either. And so in the midst of avoiding those two extremes and living a life of liberty, what we're going to see today is Paul's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned previously in the book of Galatians, but in chapters five and six, the person of the Holy Spirit comes up again and again and again. And what Paul's going to do is, is really what I'll do out of this passage is ask us six questions to consider as we read this passage together. If you'll turn with me, we're going to be in Galatians chapter five, starting in verse 16. Here's what he says. But I say, instead of moralism, instead of hedonism, he goes, but I say to you, instead of losing or abusing your freedom, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's the first question. Do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Now, a lot of people talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is, which is good. Because Christianity is not about rebellion, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. A lot of people talk about having a relationship with God, God the Father. But you don't hear as many people, and I think that's partly because the Holy Spirit is the most mysterious member of the Trinity, but you don't hear people talk a lot about having a relationship with the Holy Spirit. But when you see the, the phrase here, and I'll read it to you again in verse 16, it says this, walk by the Spirit. Let me just tell you, that's relational language. Who do you walk with? You walk with people that you love, right? The idea of walking with somebody, it, it communicates both affection and direction. Now, here's the problem. It, it, the, the verse says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The average Christian, I believe, is trying to do the exact opposite thing. They're trying to really, most of their life, they're trying to walk by the flesh, occasionally trying to gratify the desires of the Spirit. I, I don't know if you'd admit that maybe that's true for you, that, that most times you're living in the flesh and then occasionally you're trying to gratify your desire of the Spirit. Occasionally you read your Bible. Occasionally you say your prayer. You know, once in a blue moon, you know, you share your faith or talk about Jesus with somebody. Every once in a while, you get passionate about repenting of some sin or, you know, serious about some area of your life or you, you have a deep prayer life or you, you read a new book or whatever it is. But for the most part, it's very easy for us to walk in the flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. And, and what you'll see here also in verse 16, if you look carefully, is that we have to start with the Spirit. So much of the Christian life is active, not reactive. It's not, we're not defined as much by what we don't do, but by what we do, Right? Moralism is all about what I don't do. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those who do, right? That's kind of the, these are the things I don't do versus I want to be known by the things that I do do. So, so here's, think about it this way. Um, here's a good way to think about it. It is easier to stay out of temptation than to get out of temptation. 
And I'm sure you've had this experience before. And the whole idea is that if you are walking by the Spirit, actively following the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be much more likely to stay out of temptation than to find yourself trapped in temptation. Which leads to the next verse. Here's what he says, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against, and you're going to see that constant tension. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So against, against. For these are opposed. So that's three different ways we're talking about that the tension that we feel. To each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what is the flesh? Because you have to understand the spirit, the person, the Holy Spirit. You also have to understand the flesh. The, the, flesh. the flesh is not your skin. It's not your skin. The flesh is not your body. The flesh is your sinful nature. The flesh is your selfish nature. The flesh is your old nature. Uh, some have called the flesh is your shadow, almost like. It's the dark side of you that does not want to love God or obey God. And what he's saying is that you have to, part of the battle, and we'll get into this, is part of the battle of the flesh and the spirit is actually admitting that you, are, you have this two tension, <laughs> this tension, two parts. There, you have a sinful nature and you have a spiritual nature. And, and a lot of times we don't want to admit that we have the flesh. We don't want to admit that we have these sinful desires. Instead, we want to just say, well, no, it's my personality. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Or I'm a G-E-R-K on the Myers-Briggs test, okay? Or, or we want to say, we want to excuse it on our ethnic or cultural background. We want to say, you know, I'm Italian. That's, that's why I'm loud, you know? Or, you know, no, I'm from the North. It's like, no, you're just a rude person, you know? Or, no, I'm from the South. No, you're passive aggressive. Uh, we, 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 we have to admit that we have this sinful uh, selfish, fleshly desires. And what he's saying there is that the, the flesh goes against the spirit, the spirit goes against the flesh. Which leads to the second question, which is this. Are you feeling and fighting that internal war? Because here's what it says happens. I want to read it one more time. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's what he's saying. That there is an internal war inside of you between your flesh and your spirit. And what it does is it hinders you from doing what you're called to do. This is why some of you, and I say this with love, but this is why some of you are, you're in the exact same place spiritually that you've been for five years. Or you're in the exact same space, place spiritually that you've been since college or since high school. And really what happens in a lot of people's life, what happens in my life, the reason that we plateau spiritually is we get comfortable with certain areas of our flesh that we don't want to fight anymore. That we don't want to put to death. That we would rather flirt with than fight against. And so Paul comes in and he says there's this internal struggle, there's this internal conflict that hinders us from doing what we want to do. And, and how do you fight the flesh versus fighting the spirit? The, the simplest way to think about it, the most practical application I could give you is what are you feeding more? If you feed the flesh more, it will be stronger and it will, it will overpower the spirit. If you feed the spirit more, it will be more powerful and it will overcome the flesh. The, the illustration I've heard before is if you had two dogs, <laughs> they, they were the exact same age, they were, maybe they were brother dogs, they were the exact same size, they had the exact same trainer, and uh, wh which dog would win in a fight? Well, whichever dog you fed more would win. How are you feeding your spirit instead of feeding the flesh? See, our, our tendency so often is we don't even realize we're doing it. We're feeding the flesh. With the social media accounts that we're following, with the streaming services that we're watching, with the relationships that we're engaging in, with the fantasy life that we're having, all we're doing is feeding the flesh. We're gratifying the desires of the spirit. We're not walking 
in, or we're gratifying the desires of the flesh. We're not walking in the spirit, which leads to the next thing he says in verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, now this is interesting. First, he says, walk in the spirit. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Next, he says, be led by the spirit. So it's a slightly different phrase. I want you to see this. He says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, what he's talking about here is the, it's the idea of surrender and submission to come under willingly the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it may be an interesting illustration to, to, to give you, but I, I think you, Paul will do this, for, for example, I think it's in Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about um, being filled with the Spirit, which would be very similar to being led by the Spirit. He, he compares it as the opposite of drunkenness. And that's an interesting thought. And I believe that's in uh, Ephesians 5.18. And what he's saying there is that, um, if you think about it, why, why, why is liquor called spirits? Have you ever thought about that? Because they have a, if you submit to them and come under the controlling influence of them, what are you called? You're under the influence. And why do people drink too much? Because they want to be under the influence. They want to be led by something. They, they don't like who they naturally are. They don't like how they naturally act. And so what they want to do is they want to ultimately be led by something else. And so what he's saying here is, in the positive way, come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And you do that through prayer. You do that through God's word. The way that you walk with the Spirit and that you're led by the Spirit is that you're constantly asking the question, what does the Bible say about this area of my life? That's what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. Here's the third question. Are you seeing what sin is and where it leads? Are you seeing what sin is and where it leads? I want you to see in verse 19 through 21, he's going to make a, a vice list. And these are very common in the scriptures. Paul will make a list of certain sins. And, uh, and what he's going to call them, and you'll see this in verse 19, is the works of the flesh. Here's what it says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. So here's what happens. You have the desires of the flesh, which are invisible. They end up showing themselves in the works of the flesh, which are visible. The invisible becomes visible. The internal becomes external. This is what Paul's going to talk about. And I think he's going to list something like 15 or 16 different works of the flesh. And, and most commentators, most theologians, most pastors categorize them in three or three or four different categories. So let me give you the first category. The first category shows up in verse 19, and these would be sensual or sexual sins, sensual or sexual sins. And he, he lists three, right? Because where's the first place that in your life and in most people's lives, you see unhealthy desires manifest themselves? Well, in their sexual lives. Here's what it says. Um, sexual immorality, that's basically adultery, impurity, that's wrong sexual desire, and sensuality, that's kind of the extreme version of unnatural desire. Just, I do whatever I want to feel good. That's the whole idea there. And he's saying, you know, you could call these the college campus sins a lot of times. And he says, these are the first signs of the works of the flesh. Here's the second signs, spiritual sins. It's interesting. I think one of the things that you'll see um, in all of the vice lists that Paul writes down, so you're, I think I'm always surprised at the sins that are grouped together. Because the sin of murder will be next to the sin of lying. And we tend to think, well, this sin's way worse than this sin. And all of these sins are grouped together. So he gives two spiritual sins. And here's what they are. You can see them in verse 20. Idolatry and sorcery. So he's saying, here's a work of the flesh. Idolatry, we, I won't get into this a lot. Idolatry is when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. Idolatry is when your priorities are out of whack and you're worshiping something other than God. But sorcery is an interesting word. Sorcery means basically translated, it's trying to control the spiritual world. It's, it's the, it, it, in one sense, it would be the practice of magic. But it, it, it's, it's any way you try to control God. 
It's any way that you try to say, God, you will be a means to an end in my life. You're going to be a means to me getting married. You're going to be a means to my kids, you know, uh, living a great life. You're going to be a means to me making money. That God, I'm actually going to manip manipulate you and my whole relationship with you isn't for the purpose of knowing and loving you. It's for the purpose of getting something else. Well, that's, that's the whole idea of the flesh there. So he says there are sensual sins. He says there are spiritual sins. And then the largest category are social sins. Look at this. This is, shows up in the Galatians 5, 20. I'll just read them. There's a lot of them. Enmity, they're all very similar. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And he called, he, those are called the social sins because a lot of sin, and some of you, you read that list, you're like, that sounds a lot like my family. That sounds a lot like some terrible relationships I had in college. Uh, that sounds like the history of my family lineage. Uh, so, you know, so much of our lives, how, how the quality of our life, whether it's good or bad, is connected to the quality of the relationships in our lives. And, and so what he's saying here is that so much of the sin manifests itself in relationships. This is why every once in a while someone will say, well, I didn't know I was an angry person until I, you know, was married. It's like, well, actually, you were always angry. That part of you never, never got to get turned on because you were never in a significant relationship, right? A lot of times it's, I went to college and, you know, I, I had a roommate or doormate and, and I saw these new signs in me or I had a kid and I saw these new signs. It's like, well, relationships bring out the best and worst in people. So he says, hey, there's sensual sins, there's spiritual sins. Um, he said there's social sins and then there's substance abuse sins. And, and look at these in verse 21. Drunkenness and orgies, and, and orgies there is not talking about sexual orgy, orgies, it's talking about basically drunken parties is what that means. And so he's saying, here, here's another area that people tend to, uh, you know, tend to sin, and the works of the flesh tend to come out, it's in substance abuse, it's in types of self-medicating. And then he gives, he's like, okay, and if, if, I didn't, if I didn't put your sin on the list, he goes, and things like these. Because part of what we want to do a lot of times, we want to justify ourselves. We want to find something that's not on the list. Uh, you know, you read the list and go, well, it doesn't say you can't lie on, the, on that list. You know, it doesn't say you can't do illegal gambling. It doesn't say I can't cheat on my taxes. It's like the, this junk drawer is to cover all those extra things. And then he says this he, with a warning in verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but Paul is warning us here. And what he's warning us here is that, and this is something very different than what the average American um, believes, he's telling us not everybody goes to heaven. That's what he says. He says, I'm warning you as I warned you before, right? And what happens as soon as somebody dies? We always say they're in a better place. Really? Always? Everyone? What he's, what he's saying there is that I'm warning you that there are, and, and I can't get into this, but in the original language, what he's talking about there, he says, think, people who do such things. It's, it's people who these sin, these works of the flesh become patterns in their life. See, that's what you always need to worry about and work on. You know, there's so much grace. There's so much forgiveness. There's so much redemption. But what Paul is warning is there is no hope for the person who's living in unrepentant sin. There, there's hope in the sense they could repent and believe in Christ, but they, they have no, let me say it this way, they have no assurance of heaven if you live in unrepentant sin. So Paul has that warning. And then he moves to what we're most familiar with. So first he has to say, hey, look, there are, there's, this, there's this kind of internal civil war between your flesh and your spirit. And then he goes, I want you to understand that the desires of the flesh, they're gonna show up in the works of the flesh. But then Paul asks us a, a next question, which is this, is your life fruitful? And he moves from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the spirit. And this is an interesting thought. He doesn't call them the works of the spirit. He calls it the fruit of the spirit. Now, works of the flesh, I think why it's called works of the flesh is because it happens automatically. 
In the worst sense of the word, it happens naturally. It happens, it's almost like on autopilot. But the fruit of the Spirit is something completely different. The fruit of the Spirit, it, it takes time. It, it, you need to put roots down. It, it happens gradually in your life. And he mentions 16 works of the flesh, but he only mentions nine fruit of the Spirit. And I want us to look at these. And, and as I give you this list, you've heard it before. Let me encourage you. This is a great list to memorize. One of my heroes in the faith, Bill Bright, who started uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. Bill Bright, he used to, every morning and every night, for the last two decades of his life, he would pray through the fruit of the Spirit and the Ten Commandments every morning and every night as part of his devotional life. Just because it was the things that he wanted to cultivate in his life. So let me read these to you, and and then we'll look at these together. Um, He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says this, against such things there is no law. I want to take each of these. And again, in the same way that the works of the flesh tend to be categorized in different categories, people take the fruit of the spirit and they think of them three ways, upward, outward, and inward. And that's a good way to think about them. So let's, let's take the upward first, which would be love, joy, and peace. And they call them upward because they, they most reflect the nature and character of God. That, that the fruit of the Spirit in your life is love, which is the exact opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. And love is a commitment and a concern and a care for other people's highest good. We talk about that a lot, right? Because we live in a culture that talks all the time about love, but wants it to be fuzzy, doesn't want to, you know, thinks that what it means to, you know, to love or be loving is to just make other people feel good. That's not what the Bible talks about when, in regards to love. So love and then joy. Now, jo- what is joy? Joy is, I heard one person this week say, joy is holy optimism. Joy is the opposite of hopelessness, of despair. Uh, next, he says peace. And what is peace? Peace basically says, I'm trusting that God's in control. Peace, and this is important, especially in, in kind of a season that we're in, as a nation and city and church. Peace basically says this, I can't change the past, and I can't control the future. And, and I, I just want to realize that. I can't change the past. Now, God can, God can redeem the past. God can forgive my past. I can't change my past. And I can't control my future ultimately, but I can trust in the one who is in control. And when you realize those realities, you have peace, which is the opposite of how most people live, which is overly worried, overly anxious about everything. So those are what are called the upward fruit of the Spirit. Then he says, and, and this is a good question to ask, by the way, is are you growing in these, right? Because you should be growing in all of them. It's not called the fruits of the Spirit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit because they all grow together. Now, let me talk about the, or the outward elements of the fruit of the Spirit. The outward elements are patience. Uh, patience means long-suffering. It's the ability to keep going and endure hardship. And how many of us need that attribute in our lives? It's so easy to give up easily, to quit right away, to go on to the next easy thing, to give back into sin, to not have a category in our lives for suffering well across time. So he says there's patience. There's also kindness. And I love this word because kindness is also can be translated, some of your translations may say the word meekness, which literally means strength under control. That's what it means. So what does it mean to be kind? It doesn't mean that you just let anybody do anything to you. Uh, The idea of kindness or meekness is I am a very strong person, but I know how to use that strength for the good of other people, which leads to the next one. He says, from there, there is goodness. Goodness is integrity or a unified person. And then he says, there's faithfulness, which is loyalty with courage. And then finally, there's gentleness, which is humility and self-forgetfulness. And so he's saying the, the anecdote 
to fighting against the works of the flesh is not just saying no to all that stuff, but is saying yes to what Christ is doing in you and the character that he's forming in you, which leads to the last thing, which is the inward one, which is self-control. That's the final attribute that's talked about in the fruit of the spirit, which mostly has to do with your relationship with yourself. What is self-control? It's the ability to tell yourself no, which is a good habit every once in a while, just in some area of your life. And it doesn't even have to be an area of sin. It could be, a, it could be I'm not gonna have dessert tonight. You're just gonna tell yourself no so you remember who's in charge. It's the ability to tell yourself no. It's the ability to choose the important over the urgent in your life. And he's saying, would you cultivate these things? And I love what he says. He goes, against such things, there is no law. Here's what that means. You can't max these things out. You can never be too kind. You can never be too joyful. You can never be too loving. You can never be too patient. And what it's telling you is that no matter where you or I are on the spectrum of growing in these things, we always have room to grow. I mean, who knows what it would be like to all your life grow in all nine of the fruit of the Spirit. And so he's saying that's, that's what we need to do. And then in verse 24, we have another question. Are you coddling or crucifying the flesh? Are you coddling or crucifying the flesh? Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So here's what he's saying. You do two things. You cultivate the fruit and you crucify the flesh. You, you cultivate the fruit, you crucify the flesh. Now this is just, I love how honest, I mean, it's, it's hard to read these things because it's just so honest about how difficult it is to fight sin. Like of all things to say, what, what do you do to the sin in your life? Well, you don't coddle it, you crucify it. Here's what it's partly saying. There's no quick way. I wish there was. I've been a Christian now for, you know, I guess I'm coming up on 19 years. Um, there's no quick way to fight and kill sin in your life. When it says that you're crucifying sin, what were crucifixions? Crucifixions were incredibly painful. So here's what it's telling you. If you're going to be committed to fighting sin in your life, it's going to be very, very hard. And I can remember that. I can remember, uh, it still is hard, I'm saying, but I can remember my first year or two when I became a brand new believer and I was beginning to say no to a lot of sinful behaviors, sinful habits, and sinful patterns in my life. And as much as I was enjoying my relationship with God, as much as I was growing, I felt the pain, I did, of living without certain sins in my life that had brought me comfort for so long. So he's, he's, he, they're honest about the painfulness of it. Also, they're honest about how slow it often is. If you don't know this, not only is crucifixion the most painful way you could die, it's also one of the slowest ways you would die. Most people who died of crucifixion died by suffocation, which is an interesting, it's an interesting word picture of what is it like to fight sin in your life? It's to suffocate it. It's in some ways to strangle it and to say, I'm not going to give into it anymore and it's going to feel like I'm dying in some way as I say no to this sin and yes to following Christ. But then here's the encouraging word. Uh, when it says crucifixion, every crucifixion leads to death. <laughs> in other words, if you will be committed to doing this, then you actually will begin to experience freedom in your life as you say no to sin and as you say yes to Christ. Andy Davis, who was my pastor years ago, um, great godly man, he used to talk about sin. He used to say, sin is like when you pass a car on the highway. And he would say, the farther that you go down the road and you look at that car in your rearview mirror, the farther you get away, the smaller it gets. Same, same with sin. The longer you leave that sin and the farther away you get from it and the more you suffocate it and say no to it, the smaller it gets in your life. Which leads to the last question that Paul asks is are you taking your next step with the Spirit? Are you taking your next step with the Spirit? So first he says, I want you to walk in the Spirit. 
And then next he says, I want you to be led by the Spirit. But then look what he says in verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, which is the same idea of walking, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So here's what he's saying, that the Holy Spirit will meet you where you are, but he always wants you to take your next step. And let me say this to the non-Christian. If you're, if you're watching this for some reason, you're not, you're not a Christian, you're, I don't know, you tuned in, you found out about us, you're asking questions. It's like, well, what is the first step that a person takes with the Holy Spirit? They repent and believe the gospel. They turn away from their sin and they turn to Christ and there's this great exchange. The, the great exchange is, and this is the best deal ever, is that God says, if you will give me your sin in yourself, your sin is the worst part of you, yourself the best part of you. He says, if you will give me your sin in yourself, all of you, and you will transfer trust to me in return for your sin in yourself, I'll take those. And in return, what I'll give you is I will give you the spirit, my Holy Spirit, and I will give you salvation. Because here's what happens. It's not only that Christ died for you, that happens. But when you trust in Christ, it's in some way, it says also that you died with Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you and begins to guide you. I can remember that. I can remember when I became a believer, it was almost instantaneously as the Holy Spirit lived in me that I felt convicted about certain behaviors, about certain language, about certain thought patterns, about certain relationships. That was my first step was to, to invite the Holy Spirit into my life to repent and believe in the gospel. For, for the Christian, what is your, if you're listening, if you're watching, what is your next step, Christian, as you follow Christ? Some of you, you need to walk more and more with the Spirit every day actively. You need, you need to make a decision. Some of you that, hey, the first thing I'm going to do in the morning is I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray. Because as we see in this passage, we have to start with the Spirit if we're going to not gratify the desires of our flesh. Others of you, you need to work on cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in your life daily. You need, to be, you need to take these nine fruit of the Spirit and you need to pray and ask God to work them in you. Because Jesus Christ, he is the great model of all of these fruit of the Spirit. I mean, think about it. Who was more loving than Jesus Christ, who it says loved and gave himself for us? Who had more joy than Jesus Christ, who had said for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame? Who, who is more peace than the Prince of Peace who made a way for us to have peace with God and also peace with one another? Um, who was more kind, who had all the power to do anything he wanted but used it for good? Who was more gentle than the one who invites us and says, I am gentle and lowly of heart? Who had more self-control than the one who allowed himself to experience death and obeyed God even to the point of death, even death on a cross? Why? so that we could have the Holy Spirit, so that we could walk with the Spirit, so that we could be led by the Spirit, so that we could keep in step with the Spirit. Because here's the truth, our city and your family are hungry for this fruit. They are, right? Fruit is not meant to be something that's looked at from a distance. The fruit of the Spirit is something that is meant to be tasted. And I'm just telling you, as we come out of this COVID crisis, whatever the new normal looks like for however long it is, let me just tell you what your kids need at home is they need a mom and dad that are full of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. What your neighbors need in the midst of all of this are Christians who are full of gentleness and self-control. What our city needs as they're asking lots of questions is a church that is full of the spirit, cultivating it in our lives and crucifying the flesh. Let's pray to be those, that type of church. Pray with me. Lord, I just pray right now that we would cultivate the spirit and crucify the flesh. 
that we would be a church that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, I pray that we would be that type of, those type of Christians because we have families, we have community groups, we have cities, we have coworkers, we have neighbors that are hungry for that fruit. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you modeled every one of those fruit that you're calling us to cultivate in our own lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen.